This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 78 is, what is it to live rationally? And we read Ayn Rand's Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology from 1967, and two essays from her book The Virtue of Selfishness, published in 1964, namely The Objectivist Ethics from 1961, and The Conflicts of Men's Interests from 1962. You can join the discussion, get the texts, read loads of supplemental material at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, whimsically and evasively from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin, abstracting from abstractions in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn, rejecting the role of a sacrificial animal in Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> this is Dylan Casey with reason, purpose, and self-esteem in Middleton, Wisconsin. All right. I was worried someone was going to take that sacrificial animal one. I'm surprised that... <laughs> there were so many juicy tidbits. I bet we all thought <laughs> the other was going to take the choice ones. Well, didn't you feel as you were reading this that you were engaging in an act of unrandian self-sacrifice by reading these <laughs> self-abdignation? <laughs> but Rand is uh, encountering the nothing. No, I, 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 we can't start off this poorly. She's Marty. been more often requested than any other. <laughs> she has than any other topic, and so we'll just say that we're doing this, and we waited until episode seventy-eight to do this for the fans. And hopefully we'll have some new people besides the people who just monitor every single appearance of the word objectivism in the media and then <laughs> we'll listen to this only to then jump in and defend their heroine. <laughs> but she's a gateway drug to philosophy. She is objectively the 78th most important philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> objectively in that if you're reading off of experience, your experience of looking at our episode listing, that's all. It's objective. It's right there. It's measured. Yes. <laughs> when objective it's means counted. kind of subjective. We had resolved that we would just take a serious stab at this and expose the texts, the texts in particular being the philosophical ones that she wrote after her more famous novels, the biggest and most famous of which were The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, but we did not read those. Actually, I suffered through an audiobook version of The Fountainhead and might have to pull out a few comments from that. And there are speeches that people make in those novels that are Ayn Rand saying her philosophy out loud. She is one of the rare philosophers to quote her own fictional characters <laughs> as evidence for her position. <laughs> so we do get a flavor of the, uh, as John Galt said. Let's start with John Galt. I said this so perfectly in my novel that <laughs> I think that's just her recognizing who her audience was. But why do you say suffer through? Give us a sense of the novel, maybe, as a lead-in. It just dwells on situations and characters that are presented in a very, I would have to say, ham-fisted way. That the villains are so evil and so evil in the sense of saying absurd things in favor of, we all really should be altruistic and give our lives to the whole. And I, I realize that by giving my life to the whole, even I will not benefit of that. But yet I will do it. So if you had a character like that, they're not supposed to be naturalistic characters, actually. She's writing in a self-consciously contrived <laughs> way. Victor Hugo-ish way, right? I haven't actually read him. But. She cited him as one of her influences. So it's Les Miserables for the rich. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, it's supposed to be romantic heroes, and so she creates heroes and villains that are heightened. But yet, you know, it's just so over the top. If it was a short story, it would be a fine illustration. Like uh, Kurt Vonnegut has the story about the society in which everyone is made equal by the especially smart guy has to wear a helmet that will put electroshocks through his brain periodically to confuse him and keep him from focusing. And he's extra strong, so he also has to have weights that will hold him down. Imagine you'd created a character for a very similar purpose, and instead of just having him in a 10-page short story, you stretched him throughout a 1,000-page book. In other words, it's as if the world really were the way a conceited person imagines. They're the center of the universe and the greatest thing since sliced bread and everyone else is holding them down. Uh, the Fountainhead is her early, more Nietzsche-inspired work. Oh, I'm thinking of Atlas Shrugged. Yeah. I did watch about three-fourths of the first movie on Netflix, which was... Oh. So, you know, <laughs> as bad as the dialogue is, the dialogue spoken aloud. Like, I thought maybe George Lucas wrote it for a second, because it, it, was, it was that, <laughs> that Yeah, was but that then bad. it would be so bad, it would be good. <laughs> now, that's, that's the new movie version, right? Yeah. That got like 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, like no reviewer thought it was <laughs> it a positive <laughs> review. Well, I was lower than the L. Ron Hubbard Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> yeah, no. right. All right. Before this spins off totally out of control, <laughs> yeah. let's set the foundation for kind of like why we're doing this. So first off, I want to make sure all of our biases are up front. All of us have read this, or most of us had read this early on in our philosophical careers or when we not were, me. I'm, not I'm the exception here. You never had. Okay. I never read a word of her. No, okay. I haven't read her philosophy. We were forced to read. Yeah, we all read Atlas Shrugged when we were like in high school. Really? Or something I, like I never that. read that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we are doing this because we have gotten lots of feedback from fans. Given a choice, we would not have chosen to treat her in a serious way as a philosopher because our experience with her writings and adherence of her philosophy is such that it does not appear that such an engagement would be fruitful. That said, all the feedback from fans, both positive and negative, so they're the ones who are fans and the ones who want to see us take her on, if you will, finally brought us around to doing this episode. It is not my expectation that we are doing this for the purpose of engaging in a debate with objectivists. I do not believe that we can have a rational debate that is going to change their points of view. So this is really more us trying to outline what she's trying to say and, and do it seriously and then give the reasons why we think it's not really viable as a philosophical system. I'm usually the advocate of charitable reading and trying to give that charitable account before we launch into our objections. But that said, I don't think we have to, if we feel scorned for an author or something like that, I don't think we have to hide that because it's going to offend the no, 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 I... objectivists. This is probably going to offend the objectivists, this podcast. So. Absolutely. What I'm saying is I don't believe anything we say here is going to change anybody's mind. If they are adherents, because if you call yourself an objectivist or if you say you're a follower of Ayn Rand... Let's just substitute that for some other figure in the history of philosophy. So, Wes, if I said you're a Kantian... I often get accused of that. You do get accused of that. What would be the expectation of me saying that? Would that mean that you're a dogmatic adherent to the categorical imperative and the notion of the manifold of intuition and all these things to the extent where you defend Kant against all comers? I really find Kant interesting, but I'm just as interested in his failings as in his, what I consider his successes. So that's a little different than someone who becomes an apologist for a figure 
typically when somebody calls someone a Kantian or accepts that they're a Kantian or a Hegelian or a Straussian or Wittgensteinian is that they mean they're partisans of a certain sort, but they're not generally apologists, meaning they're sympathetic in that direction. To identify yourself as a Wittgensteinian or a Kantian or an Aristotelian or something like that, you mean to say, this is the perspective I'm sympathetic to. And typically it hinges on a pretty major issue. Like if you say, well, I'm kind of with Nagel on this, right? Then you're saying something about what your beliefs are about consciousness. But it doesn't mean that you're fanatically devoted to the exclusion of all other points of view to all of the logical consequences and writings of that particular person. It usually means you're a scholar of that particular person. There's a difference between being a scholar and an adherent. If you yeah, and there's a point where it becomes political, right? So Marx is a good foil for this. You know, you could say someone is a Marxist. So that might mean two different sorts of things. A scholar who sort of leans in the direction of Marx on some issues. And in the other direction, it might mean someone who has certain political aspirations. Part of the reason why objectivism is interesting and worth looking into is because it's had an influence on American politics. I was surprised in, our, in these readings by the number of things directly influential on the American political landscape. So that includes, for instance, members of Congress who say they're adherents of Ayn Rand and even named after Ayn Rand, like <laughs> Rand Paul. This type of thinking is a really important strain in American politics and not just on the right, but on the left. There's a sort of rationalist movement people who adhere to scientism. And what's interesting there, too, is this use of objectivism or rationalism. It sounds as if you're defending yourself in the title of your group, as if, you know, I am immune to challenge because I'm actually a proponent of reason or objectivism. I'm an inherent of the truth. As opposed to truthers. Right. <laughs> I mentioned that we were doing this podcast today and somebody said, what is it about her philosophy that you find problematic? And I said, well, she's polemical. She doesn't argue for, at least in the stuff we were reading, it's just sort of statements of, well, this is the way things are. And there's no attempt to justify it with either reason or evidence. It essentially is an appeal to authority as opposed to what we consider to be philosophy, which is rational dialogue. Yeah. And I listened, Mark, to that objectivist podcast. Leonard Peikoff, her heir. Oh, okay. Like he's well, actually the executor of her estate. Okay. Well, I, I listened to three episodes of that. It's essentially him and somebody else answering questions that were emailed or written in or whatever too. And they're just these broad sweeping statements without any recourse to fact. Of course, yeah. we're on a path to destruction and there will be a dissolution of the government at some point. And you're like, on what basis are you saying these things? I would call it an argument from contempt in many cases. There's a lot of contemptuousness we'll see in this. And that includes caricatures of opposing positions, dismissals without too much argument against them. I was trying to find the author on this Ayn Rand Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article. Nira Badwar and Roderick Long. Yeah. It's not one of our required readings, but I would highly recommend it. It's a very valiant attempt to make Rand speak to other philosophers because she generally refused to do so. They'll sketch out her position and then say, well, she has been accused of mischaracterizing the position she's arguing against. <laughs> it's not clear. Here's Like her, turning she, Kant she, into an idealist? Yeah. Okay. So whenever she says something about Kant, she doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. Go listen to our couple of Kant episodes. I had never read anything she had written. So I started off with Introduction to Objective Epistemology. And I really felt like I was reading an essay by one of my former mediocre students that was full of interesting little brief insights 
but that I would have a much more interesting conversation with them about later to help articulate what it is they were trying to say. And that's what I felt like the Stanford article was. It made it much more clear how it could have been more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) She's engaging these interesting questions. What is the given in perception? So she has interesting questions on her mind. She comes across as someone who doesn't have the patience to dwell on things for too long. And will make a sweeping generalization, then move on. Yeah. She has interesting moments mm-hmm. and ideas that are might be worth talking about, but you can't have any expectation that she's going to make them more clear. She's going to say them. So she's kind of oracular in that respect. And you have to yeah. suss them out a little bit. She was as bad a writer as, yeah. you know, it's passable. It's not utterly terrible. It's not obfuscating and frustrating in that respect, but it's just polemical. It's just like sophomore essays that I read over and over and over again, where students were just trying to get something off their chest and just say it with vigor. And you could respect that. But it was going to be an interesting conversation later. It wasn't going to be something on its own. I just had to slog through it. She sort of takes every conceivable (laughs) position, including the ones she's criticizing. So she'll sound like a nominalist. She'll sound like an Aristotelian at times or like a Kantian, or even a Hegelian. And as we go through it, I can point to these. But then at the same time, she's not just criticizing these positions, but maybe with the exception of Aristotle, she's dismissing them as ludicrous, even though she's sort of unknowingly parroting some of the same insights of each one of these positions. So That's because they're fooling themselves. They're evading. Right. Let me give it just an overview, a brief overview of the way these two sets of essays fit together. She'd already written these novels that lay out a vision of what the virtuous man is, the meaning of life, the goals, selfishness over altruism, all that stuff was out there. She then wanted to write some more systematic stuff to tie it down. And this objectivist epistemology essay really is an attempt to lay out an undisputable, I really think she thinks she's arguing that she's building up very much like Descartes from the obvious to lay out this position. And then she even has in this second edition, the expanded second edition, it has all these notes from, I guess, seminars where she road tested this stuff with, well, they're all listed as the people she's talking with as professors, but I don't know if they were actually professors, <laughs> where they then get into some of these details of... They were professors of interior design. <laughs> Didn't she also, at this point, already had started the Objectivist Society or something with Nathaniel Brand? That was going on in the 50s or early 60s already, right? So you had an explicit philosophical political movement going on. This is written 66, first published in The Objectivist, July 1966 to February 1967, which is the same place the Objectivist newsletter that Virtue of Selfishness essays are published. So actually, I'm... I was thinking for some reason that the epistemology one was separate from that effort. So to me, even though they're all polemical to some extent, the epistemology ones are much more tame in terms of the virtue of selfishness essays. Many of them are just brief and dismissive. And, you know, the one that we read, the main one, the objectivist ethics is the text from a seminar she gave. So it's like a speech. It's a a speech at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Yes. So that's hardly the place that you would think that, you know, I'm going to give, here's the definitive lay down, but there's not any more careful overview of the ethics that I found in the book or anywhere else. So that's the best we got. 
Well, you mentioned uh, Dylan Nathaniel Brandon, right? So he was a psychotherapist who published some popular books on self-esteem, I think. And we see some of this self-esteem stuff in Brand's work. And it quotes him, I think, in one of the ethics essays. Well, he actually wrote some of the ethics essays in that book. And they were business partners for a long time. And then they had some kind of falling out. It was a romantic quarrel. Okay. No rational person has a romantic quarrel. (laughs) As depicted in the movie, The Passion of Ayn Rand actually was written by Brandon's (laughs) wife and depicts this relationship. I did not watch that movie, but it has Helen Mirren in it, so it's probably good. Mm. In Nathaniel Brandon's wiki thing, it says, uh, in 1968, Rand broke publicly with Brandon and published an article denouncing him accusing him of a variety of perceived offenses such as philosophic irrationality and unresolved psychological problems. In response, <laughs> Brandon sent out a letter to their mailing list suggesting that the actual cause of Rand's denunciation of his was his unwillingness to engage in a romantic relationship with her. And then he later explained in his memoir that he and Rand had in fact been romantically intimate for a period of time in the 50s while they were both married with other people, but it was an open marriage. He went on to become the father of the self-esteem movement and eventually offered criticisms of aspects of Rand's work, naming as problems her tendency to encourage emotional repression and moralizing, her failure to understand psychology beyond its cognitive aspects, and her failure to appreciate adequately the importance of kindness in human relationships. He apologized in an interview to every student of objectivism for perpetuating the Ayn Rand mystique. Mm. So it's not just we've been poisoned by academia, and so that's why we're all dumping on her work. No, this guy was as into it as anybody could be, and even wrote some of the essays in one of her major books. And yet eventually, even though he thought yeah. broadly, there were some good things about it, thought that she was pretty full of it. Yeah, but he's sort of not a disinterested party. <laughs> that's <laughs> I mean, true. No more than Yeah, that. let's work through the epistemology. Yeah. I want to say one more thing before. <laughs> so I read this book, Objectivist Epistemology and the Virtue of Selfishness. Somebody on my dorm hall gave it to me. My formative philosophical years... And so this book in particular, Objectivist Epistemology, like it ends up saying, basically, if you can't give a definition for every word that you use, then you are full of shit, like an explicit definition. And wow, that'd be a lot of work. Here, I thought I was doing a lot of thinking, and yet I can't produce the kind of definitions on demand that she's demanding from every single word I use. So it wasn't that long before I then read, if anybody wants to listen to our Wittgenstein episode about how... uh Definitions don't quite work like that. There is no (laughs) explicit definition for anything (laughs) that works infallibly. Although Rand has a kind of response to that, and she mentions Wittgenstein in the system. Yes. Well, whether she read it. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. (laughs) All right. But in any case, it probably would have been good for me since she's one of the characters that was then populating my imagination since the beginning. It's kind of like a repression that we didn't have an Ayn Rand episode, didn't acknowledge her existence. And apparently I took the opportunity at every turn to relate whatever we were talking about to Ayn Rand and specifically, <laughs> not remembering even very well exactly what her positions were. So it probably would have been better for my sake just to do this a long freaking time ago. Get it out of your system. Yes. The one sentence version is it's kind of like the logical positivists that we talked about on earlier episodes that they're trying to be strict empiricists. So they're trying to base everything on what is actually experienced. And that means that you don't say like uh, Locke does that the given is sense data or something like that, because that's not what we experience. What we experience are concrete, individualized objects. And that's the only thing we can really confirm. The only thing that is real are these individual tables and chairs and things like that around us. Now, we use concepts to group these things together to be able to talk about them efficiently. 
And so we are abstracting from these experience of individual percepts, these individual entities that present themselves to us in much the way that we use math to be able to fit more things in our head when we can't. If we didn't have numbers and we wanted to think of more than seven specific things, it would be very difficult. I have the number seven million. So I don't have to think of each one of those individually. I can just think of the number 7 million. So numbers are a shorthand for talking about a lot of individual things. That's the way she thinks about concepts. They're just a mental tool that is shorthand of talking about a lot of individual concrete things. And that's the whole secret of epistemology is to keep in mind that if you have any words that you're using, that you cannot re-describe, define the terms that you are using in terms of either individual concrete things or other abstractions from individual concrete things, then you're full of shit. Be sure to link this up with her notion of measurement. This is one of the ways in which she abstracts the notion of measurement. Each of these concepts and the way in which one makes them is a kind of measurement as far as she's concerned, in that it's quantified. At first, I was thinking, well, she's just doing Descartes without ever mentioning Descartes at all. Descartes wanted to turn everything into extent, and all extent was the analog of distance. But her notion of measurement isn't explicitly um, quantified in that way. It's any kind of distinction, really, amounts to a measurement, a way of bounding something. The measurements are omitted. So a concept is a mental integration of two or more units possessing the same distinguishing characteristics with their particular measurements omitted. So she's using this idea of measurement to get a concept, but obviously we're not using numerical measurements when we're using concepts. Yeah, but in some funny way, they're abstracted from, so they're implied, but it didn't seem to me that she was going to be utterly consistent in this, the way she wants to make a big deal about measurement in this kind of empiricist way that Mark was referring to. And I think in the end, her idea of making something objective and part of reality turns on this idea that everyone can lay their senses on it in the same way so that it's there and available for them. She talks about that philosophy's kind of gone off the rails. It's gotten seduced by metaphysics and some other things. And what we need is a very strong epistemology to ground things because in a weird way, she's sort of allied with Deleuze you know, she thinks the fundamental activity that human beings engage in, what differentiates us from animals and what differentiates smart people from stupid people is concept creation. And so what she's trying to explain here is how concept creation works. So in that sense, insofar as Deleuze thinks that philosophy is the act of creating concepts and that it's creative, she thinks the act of creating concepts is determined by what she calls facts, and that rather than being creative, it's an expository exercise. So there's a structure to the world, there are facts, and insofar as your concepts accord with the facts of reality, you have a better or worse conceptual apparatus. And so she thinks of concept creation as an organic developmental activity that is done well or poorly depending on how your capacities are as a human being and how much experience you have. So what Dylan and Wes were just talking about in terms of the measurement and mathematical and all that is to use an analogy, you see one thing, you see two things, you see three things, and after exposure to multiple units, 
over time, you come up with the concept of multiplicity. So you see three things over and over and over again, and eventually you come up with the concept of three. In just the same way, she thinks that you see one dog, two dog, three dogs, and over time, eventually you come up with the concept of dog. In no uncertain terms, as far as this text is concerned, that is how we come up with concepts. And she has a kind of slapdash embryological psychology slash evolutionary psychology thing going on. The evidence for this being the way in which we understand tables and dogs and apples and fruit is because we see children doing this. That's the way they accumulate their concepts. I found that whole portion somewhat fantastical, but that's the psychological base of her argument. Yes. Descartes makes a very similar but importantly different argument when he's talking about how you make the connections in a method so that you understand a function out of its points. And he has this very, very interesting essay that he wrote a draft of before the geometry called, I want to say on the right ways of thinking. Rules for the direction of the mind. That's it. Rules for the direction of mind. Thanks. And he talks about how when we go over individual instances in our mind, we have to connect them together into a chain. And he is very concerned about utter clarity and utter certainty, which is one of the reasons he moves towards extent as being the nub of being able to have clarity. And so things are clear and distinct. And by linking things that are clear and distinct, the things that we know, you can then improve the certainty of them. And that's why he makes these links to mathematics in this respect, that I understand the claim at the beginning of the proof, and then I work my way to the end. And it's by understanding, making the chain between the clear and distinct pieces along the way, and I have as small of a gap as possible between one step and the other, so that I can have my intellect go from one step to the other in one fell swoop to get that continuity, that then I can make the whole length of the argument and know that the argument is certain. And implicit in that is a kind of continuity and discreteness problem where you have individual facts. And the problem is, I see the clear and distinct nature of this one claim or this one fact. How do I link them together? So he's making this argument that while I do that by having a motion of my mind through them. So there's something similar in what she's doing with trying to have measurements be the form of these concepts that are built up one on top of the other. She takes it in a different direction. One of the important things about concept formation is this idea of the unit. A unit is an existent regarded as a separate member of a group of two or more similar members. It involves this act of consciousness, and it's not an arbitrary creation of consciousness. It is a method of identification or classification according to the attributes which consciousness observes in reality. I think one of the things she thinks she's fighting against in a lot of different philosophical theories is a kind of relativism, the idea that everything is, let's say, socially constructed, or that our concepts are purely a matter of our particular cognitive constitution and have nothing to do with reality. At the same time, here, that almost sounds like she's leaning in an Aristotelian direction. And then she'll, especially when we get to the section on definitions, where it almost sounds like she's basing her epistemology in sort of real definitions of things in the Aristotelian sense. It sounds as if there are natural kinds. These units are not simply the way human beings 
carve up the world according to certain pragmatic considerations or because their brain is happens to be a certain way. But when we, we see a deer, there really is this natural kind deer. Then she gets to the point where she explicitly rejects that sort of Aristotelian realism. And of course, she rejects Platonism. So it's not that we can ground our use of concepts in natural kinds. We can't ground them in platonic ideals. And yet she's not a nominalist. Or at least she seems to want to reject nominalism. She's trying to avoid all the different pitfalls of the different philosophical alternatives of how you would epistemologically ground knowledge, the problem of universals. But it's unclear to me exactly what her solution is, unless it's this kind of neo-Kantian solution where you say, well, yes, objective knowledge has something to do with the relationship of our cognition to the world. On the one hand, it's not entirely arbitrary, but on the other hand, it doesn't even make sense to speak of knowledge independent of the structure of the mind or the structure of the brain, however you want to think about it. Well, the biggest advantage that I got out of looking at the Stanford article was that it actually distinguished in a way that Rand doesn't between objective and intrinsic. Rand makes it sound like everything is either just a matter of individual whim, it's subjective, or it's it's real, it's objective, right. it's there. And just relying on our intuitive notion of what that means, which is if we are all dead, if there are no human beings on Earth, those things would still be the case. Something like that would actually be intrinsic. So if there were natural kinds, if there really was a natural kind deer in the way Aristotle thinks, that would be not objective, that would be intrinsic. Objective, and the way Rand explicitly talks about this, is a matter of how objectively the mind interacts with things. In other words, it's not a matter of our personal choice. It's not a matter of our cultural preferences. It's not anything like that. It's a fact about human nature. So how does right. human nature interact with the world? That's a Humean and Kantian use yeah, of, the, yes. of the word objective. So Rand would never admit to that because she thinks that Kant is the font of all subjectivism. But actually, her view is, according to this Stanford article, has been called not that different from Kant's in that she distinguishes the purely subjective and the intrinsic from the objective. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com support. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.